0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Doug Richens. Um, Doug, will you introduce—I'm going to let you introduce yourself to make sure I get it correctly. First, just introduce what you do for the church.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, Doug Richens, I am a manager in the Priesthood and Family Department uh, over special topics, specifically the impact of crime and incarceration— And that's what we're going to
0: talk about on this podcast, is the impact of crime and incarceration. Um, Doug works for the church, has worked for the church for 20 years, but Doug isn't here in official church capacity. And so this is not, as I've shared in the past, an official church-sponsored podcast, but we're willing to talk about with people like Doug that are working... Um, on sensitive issues in our community that are willing to share some of the things that they're learning so we can all do better. Is that okay,
1: Doug? That's perfect. Yes. It's a, uh, this has just been a journey. And it's important that my journey be expressed in my voice. And then there's that professional hat that I wear that's apart from this, but the subject needs to be talked about. So.
0: And this is that podcast where we're talking about all those subjects um in this case, we've never done anything about crime and incarceration um and I recognize that um there's a lot of families that are dealing with this, and we need to be able to talk about this and keep the family circle together. so I'm going to make sure Doug does a lot of talking um Doug is a father of um six kids, got a degree from b y u And tell us about professionally. You're in the middle of
1: education, even in your 40s. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Pursuing a degree from Purdue University, uh, doctorate, juris doctorate program from them.
0: And is that related to um, your church work um, in crime and incarceration?
1: You know, it's been um, a passion of mine for a long time to study the law. And the alignment and the timing has happened, so... Yeah. And it is, it's is very helpful for what I'm doing now. That's great.
0: We have said a prayer before we started, as we often do in these podcasts. And we just, I just hope that I'll ask questions and make sure Doug does a lot of the talking. So the things that he has prepared and his insights will be helpful for you, our listeners. Some of you are working on this issue within your family, but some of you are local leaders um, or and wanting to help families that have families in this space. And I certainly didn't have any training on how to minister to families that had family members in this space. So I'm looking forward to what Doug will share with us, but maybe I'll just let you start where you want to start, Doug.
1: The subject is the important thing today. Um, I do think it's important though that we talk about our journey into this a little bit. All of us have a touch point with the criminal justice system in some fashion. Um, increasingly and in many homes, surprisingly, a, a large percentage of homes have a, a deeper involvement, a really tragic and troublesome journey through that. For me, I don't even know uh, where to begin. The Probably the, one of the most important experiences of my younger life, grew up in Salt Lake City, East Mill Creek. Skyline High. Skyline High. You were a rivalry, you know, Highland High. We were always getting beat up
0: by Skyline. Maybe we beat you in a few things, but...
1: Uh, I don't remember. (laughs) It's a little blurry. It is blurry, but keep going. Thank goodness it's blurry. Um, My older brother, David, had returned home from a LDS mission in Venezuela. I was 11 years old. He had rolls of film that needed to be developed. He turned them into slides of all crazy things i remember sitting in the basement loading carousels of his mission slides so excited to see his mission and as that you know we hung a sheet on the wall and he hit play and started to, to advance the slides through the carousel and i saw poverty like i had never seen now that's not all of caracas that's not all of venezuela but many of the areas david served Um you know, I was 11 years old, raised in Mill Creek, active member of the church. And I, I said, what is this? Holy cow. I made a few comments <clears throat> and I don't remember the words that I said, but I remember talking that, uh, I'm so glad this doesn't exist here was the gist of what I was saying. You know, my dad, who is, a, uh, uh, we lost dad a few years ago, but just a Good, good man. He could really sit in the gutter with someone who was struggling and just listen. Very gifted that way. He said, "Son, let's let's go for a ride." So we got in the car, drove downtown, Union Station. Literally went to the other side of the tracks behind uh, there and looked at the homeless populations in our valley. Um, we got out of the car and walked around those bridges, under those bridges. And I was scared. I didn't understand it. And at the same time, I was having just a really significant awakening that there were needs right here that I didn't know existed. I grew up in a good home, a home that didn't talk uh, real openly about sensitive subjects. But there were a few touch points where we went a little bit deeper, and this was one of those. Poverty, yeah, on poverty. Um, as I became a working professional, I served a mission in Argentina. Again, another exposure to beautiful people, many of whom living in a in a condition that astonished me at the time. Um, I got hired by Church Education. I taught in the classroom for fourteen years. Wow, Church Ed. Early in my career, maybe the first year or two, I had some, like every single classroom, there are students with disabilities. And so I called my supervisor and said, what do I do? How do I, how do I help this student read or whatever? Didn't have an answer for me. I kind of pursued this up the line and found out there wasn't anyone in, in that, in that circle that supported me directly that could give me the answer. So I, set to studying on the subject of disability, eventually became the manager of disability services for church education. So 700,000 plus students, 40,000 teachers, and we would say, okay, how do we help them understand the needs in the classroom? Uh, That changed me. Those years of studying, taking what I had learned and just starting to share it with my colleagues um, and finding a way to, to help that organization was really important. One day, I was at the church office building. A colleague came in and threw a, a spiral-bound curriculum on my desk, and it had been written by um, a group of uh, Institute of Religion instructors who served at the Salt Lake Prison, and it was a prison curriculum. I didn't know it existed. This was about eight years ago. And he said, would you look into this, figure out what this is, and and bring a report to the leadership? And so for the first time, I went out to the prisons and the jails and started to look at what we used from a learning perspective, gospel study, and uh, just saw the needs and the beauty of what could take place and the harshness of the environment and the industry complexities and just began that process of understanding. And today, um in the priesthood and family department, we now have a group of missionaries and a you know a ministry service uh regarding this, and it's just a privilege to be at the front end of it so. I love
0: what you said that when you wanted this spiral binder and this assignment, I love what you said. I went to the prisons and yeah. I went to the jails. I love your father saying, we're not going to go see a movie about poverty. We're going to go drive to wherever in Salt Lake, and we're going to go meet people in poverty and we're and that would scare me too. You know Doug. when you go into
1: a: f- correctional What a facility, wonderful principle. The first time you are six doors deep in a in a prison, you know it, six doors deep, and you feel. A lot of emotion and at the same time you encounter people who are striving to do many you know in our in our church services are incredibly spiritual Um, the cultural baggage of that sometimes can exist in a home ward is gone Uh, these a group of men or women are gathered to find Jesus Christ and to repent and to improve to heal and it's beautiful those who serve in those callings know how tender it is, but it's not all warm and fuzzy either. It's a harsh, harsh environment. It's a whole world into itself, but getting into that space, um, over the last six or seven years now, eight years, that's, that was the first step I've, I think I visited now over a hundred correctional facilities across the country. Um, San Francisco County, LA County. Uh, I went to uh, Brooklyn Youth Detention and looked at the mass incarceration of urban black, brown and black boys. Uh, looked at that prison school to prison pipeline that exists. School the, to prison pipeline. Yeah, there's a um, in in the south, in the north, in the wherever you're at, it takes on a different flavor there's different realities there's a lot of shared experiences there but um, it's been important to, to go through the doors to sit with those couples assigned to go in and minister and say tell me your story, what do you need where are you, where are you at and then to sit knee to knee with folks who are incarcerated and say ask the same thing what do you need where are you at Um, beautiful stories along the way though. Tell our listeners
0: more what the church is doing. So we, uh, you know, is, I mean, I would, as a rank and file member, not even (coughs) know for sure, not for sure if the church has an organized effort, you know, like in your department, which you're, I'm I'm realizing now there is because of what you told me ahead of time. But if, if I had not known what you just told me, I wouldn't realize that there is a coordinated effort um within the church and people working on this so share
1: more of what's going on so there is a, a an element at headquarters an office of correctional services um large group of service missionaries who volunteer their time we receive 5 to 6000 letters a year from inmates asking every question you can imagine most of them hoping for a copy of the scriptures or a subscription to a church magazine. And our missionaries write a personalized, warm, caring response to every individual. We mail out tens of thousands of of volumes of church materials every year. That's cool. As a gift. Yeah, it is. And it is, uh, it's beautiful. It is really beautiful. We have a small correspondence course, a guided study. Um, for religious materials that exist, the Institute of religion um some really visionary people of the past have put that in place and and we're working with with how to what to do with that and how to have that bless lives uh family history we have family history centers and prisons across the country there's different ways individuals who are incarcerated can can engage in that. You know, what's so interesting is that um, the language we use for the family history work in prisons is we, we focus on this phrase, my unfinished story. And as individuals look to the past, like we all do, we look to the past and we, we learn about our, our ancestors. Um, eventually we come up to where we're at. And as we, are able to talk to leaders and to individuals and and communicate. Your story isn't finished. You can rewrite your future. It's really, really powerful. A lot of hope in that. Yeah. Addiction recovery classes, uh, Institute of Religion programs. Um, there are branches of the church across the country, 120 correctional branches. There are hundreds, hundreds of ministering. Uh, experiences where a stake president would have a facility, a correctional facility in the boundaries, assign a high councilman perhaps, or just call a couple and say, Here's someone to go visit, get in there and, and meet. Um, Through the a cool. A lot going on. Yeah, a lot going on.
0: I can't remember which one's assigned to our stake, but I think it's Wasatch. Okay. And, um, and the men and women from our stake that serve in those callings often don't want to come back to the ward. No, it's pure religion. Uh, and it's pure talk about that. Why is it pure religion? You know, um,
1: boy, I just think God is is gracious um, and and giving to those who are in despair in just a unique way. Those who are incarcerated. Um, and are earnestly seeking forgiveness. Uh, they know where they're at. They know what they've done. They can just talk about anything. Um, they want to heal. They want to, uh, restitution. Um, and so as you go in and you have that calling, 90% of your conversations are right about the atonement, right about those core issues. Uh that we'd hope every ward would focus on maybe um so it's a beautiful place to serve it's a great place the harsh realities of that world are there as well but um, for those who who have those branch callings they really enjoy it
0: and i looked on on lds tools as you were talking it's ox it's oxbro so oxbro yep oxbro yeah i don't want to miscommunicate if anybody mistake stake is <laughs> Serving there, I want to get you in the right assignment. Thanks for those that are serving everywhere. Um, talk about what do you say to families that have a family member incarcerated? Do you have any advice if I have a dear family member that's incarcerated? And then maybe I'll ask another question, what advice would you have for me as a as a local leader if I were a Release Society president, young men's president? Um, Bishop and just had ward members incarcerated. So those are kind of two
1: questions that could take quite a bit of time. Um, I think your, your question about what, what do we say to families? How do we support families? This has been probably the greatest discovery of this last 12, 18 months of our work. Uh, For decades, we have focused on uh, ministering to those who are incarcerated while incarcerated. There is an an incredibly kind of a grassroots movement, if you will, even um, by those who are serving in the prisons to help those transition as they get out and, and to find housing and employment and reconnect with family. And members are seeking to figure out how to do that. But the great discovery, I think, has been uh, a recognition that those impacted by crime and incarceration is a much larger circle than just the offender. The victim of crime has a lot of needs, and there is a way to approach those needs, honestly, straightforward. Um, And the family of the offender, the children, the spouse left behind, their world is in tatters. Uh, financially, uh, I mean, there's so so much impact um, around that. And so we're looking closely at trying to understand that, not just as a church, really. Um, in fact, we probably should really emphasize this, that this is a community issue. I'm grateful that I can engage in it within my employment and in a personal level, but all faiths, all civic groups are engaging in this. Um, Arizona State University hosts an annual conference called The Impact of Crime and Incarceration Upon Families and Children. I've attended the last couple of years. And it is three or four days of lectures and data uh, where we're really learning what happens to children when dad or mom goes to jail, long-term, short-term, Frequently, the, the victim is in the home. Family relations are torn apart. Not always, but it's common. Um, and our eyes are opening, uh, I think, to this reality. Leadership and, and members are increasingly very sensitive to these needs. Um, so I think number one would be we talk we walk through the door if brother so and so is uh, incarcerated and there's confusion and there's shame there's embarrassment you want to you want to be sensitive in all things but not indifferent and you want to walk through the door and listen and meet the needs that are that are coming that spouse is going to be facing bills and loss of health insurance perhaps and a lot of other things and that world is crumbling Kids are confused. In fact, the data is showing that uh, the child of a parent who's incarcerated experiences the same level of trauma as a victim, a child who was who was victimized. Wow. So you're looking at a family in crisis. Maybe they put on a strong front. Maybe they don't. But they uh, they're they're confused and they're scared. The industry, the criminal justice system, is difficult to get your arms around even more so when you're thrust into it on the spur of the moment because of an altercation or a crime so you've got attorneys showing up you've got civil code criminal code you're trying to understand how the system works just how the courts work Um, the correctional industry is filled with amazing people uh leaders across the country, national leaders, are, are just phenomenal. I've, I've been in the Federal Bureau of Prisons in D.C., met with officials, um, looking at how they fulfill their obligation uh, and also are seeking to do it in a way that doesn't inflict more harm than they need to. But the the industry is enormous. It's an $80 billion a year industry. Um, and so you have got uh, a lot of interests coming together within this within this moment, this crisis. Um, and when I say $80 billion, we've got those who build the prisons, those who provide the security, the cameras, the body armor, like all the realities of running a jail or a prison. Uh, it's a big business. Mass incarceration is a big business. You've got A political side to this. Yeah. Um, Where for many, many years in our country, people have been elected on get tough on crime language. We still see that today. Uh, Tough on crime is essential. Tough on criminals doesn't maybe always work. 95% of those who are incarcerated will be released. What can we do during that time period to help prepare them for society instead of just... The punitive model but that family in your community that is impacted here there's an there's a there's an arrest or an investigation that drags on for months and um, you walk through the door and you listen and you say how can I help you cry a lot probably um, a lot of fears a lot of unknowns um, helping people find good information Uh, navigate that system is really essential. I like this line of walk through the door.
0: Um, I like the visual of that. And to me, I think you're speaking to other family members that may pull away from a family. If there's a family with this, they may not know what to say, or a local leader. If I'm a young men's leader and one of my young men's fathers is in jail, I'm thinking I like this visual. I should walk through the door or whatever that represents in this relationship, talk to this young man who probably wants to talk about what's going on in his life with somebody.
1: We were, uh, there was a meeting a few weeks ago, a woman who had been incarcerated for five years. She's out now. Uh, She came and joined us for a discussion. We, uh, We said, tell us about the impact of your incarceration on your children. And she described what I expected. There was confusion, embarrassment, shame. And then she made a beautiful statement where she said, as a family, we decided that my incarceration would not be a secret. And she said, when we made that decision, everything improved. Why? She described the the healing that was needed, the mistakes that were made just to be able to put everything on the table and talk about it first in their home first within their their closest family network that extended family support network but then as the kids progressed over five years while she was incarcerated they were able to speak openly not in, in being angry at mom or angry at this but here's where we're at and we're okay God is with us we're progressing. It's going to be okay. We've got the long view, The long view. Um, and as we were in that discussion and, uh, this brave woman said that we decided as a family that my incarceration would not be a secret. Um, I mean, I, in my mind just raced dozens and dozens of families I know that are in the thick of this. Um, who struggle with that place between being open and receptive of help and those who are really in that cover up shame embarrassed place and that's personal uh, the answer isn't just to be loud and open about things but for this family that was really was really helpful made a big difference
0: what would you say and you may still have some answers to these questions <laughs> that I've asked you do you have more answers, or do you want me to ask you a new question? Let's talk about leader for
1: just two okay. seconds. Um, I'm so grateful for our prophet, uh, our prophets, our leaders. Uh, they, the, the phrase home-centered, church-supported uh, is transformative for our people, if we will think on it, if we'll act on it. Um for bishops to be reminded of their primary focus on youth on repentance on the the temporal needs uh, of their assignment and to bring forward the role of an elders quorum president and a relief society president Um, women who have been victimized probably aren't maybe aren't always prepared to be greeted by a man To talk about their problems and having a a relief society president who can minister cool right up to the line where a bishop and even places where bishops have traditionally held those responsibilities that is so positive for a wise bishop to leverage who was the right voice to get in with this family and support not that the bishop wouldn't be involved but an elders quorum president a relief society president a delegation to a couple that's has the the bandwidth and the resources to help that's some really smart thinking um it's hard for a bishop when someone is arrested from their ward they don't perhaps they're a young bishop and they don't know the how do you get into jail i mean how do you get in to see someone? How, you know, you're starting from scratch around a lot of these issues. Do you keep their records in your ward or do the
0: records right. go somewhere else? I'm starting to think of these questions that I've it, never it thought of. It just snowballs. There's still a priesthood responsibility if, the, if they're physically living out of the ward in jail.
1: Yeah. Um, thinking home centered, thinking individual first. What's the right thing to do? What does this person need today? Um, one of the silly, I'm a baseball fan. And one of the analogies that I think is really important came uh, as I was listening to this World Series this last year. They were in game six. In Houston. Yes. And I hope you're not an Astros fan. That was painful. No. <laughs> we've been I've been in D C quite a bit and it was fun to watch watch the nationals move forward, even without Bryce Harper. But the uh um we are in game six, and the, the commentators were talking about a potential game seven. Do you keep this picture in reserve for this game? I don't remember which of the guys said it, but he said, uh, he said no. You play the game you're in first. Um, I think there's, a, there's a, a place in that where we could draw some analogy for ministering to those in crisis, whatever that may be, if it's uh, someone who's struggling with thoughts of self-harm and suicide, someone impacted by crime and incarceration, mental health. None of these issues happen in isolation. There's an addiction component. There's a lot of things happening all at once. And you got to play the game you're in. That leader needs to go in and minister here now needs. And um, in a way that the Lord would have him do. Uh to exercise and turn those keys in in an inspired way is the work. That's the work. Love that. So (laughs) who's
0: your favorite baseball team? You know, we're Red Sox, you're Red Sox
1: fans, you know, fans. Yeah. We, Sometimes I want to do this. I think every one of my children owns something that says Red Sox on it. <laughs> <laughs> my 16-year-old my has about 12 shirts that say Red Sox. So. They're a good team. <laughs> um,
0: my favorite's the Dodgers, and they keep breaking my heart, and I had higher expectations <laughs> this year. Anyway, um, I love what you just taught there. And I love, because I remember game six and them talking about these pictures. I I can't remember who the pictures were and who the commentators were, but
1: I love love that. You got to be present. You got to be in through the door. Um, For many years, I worked on the suicide prevention resources for the church, managed the development of that work. And that came through time and time again um, as we brought in experts around this. And we said, what is the most important thing we can do as neighbors, as community, as church, when someone is facing this? Be present. Be sensitive. Give space, but also be there. Sometimes just in silence even. But be there. That came through time and time again. And then uh, the second part of that was meaningful conversations ask the real questions that need to be asked if a family is in crisis because of a a victimization and there's a a criminal charges and there's a you know there's an ongoing trial um, you got to find your voice around that you got to be sensitive and and minister the way the lord would have us minister but um, walk through the door and be there And uh, be part of that, part of the solution that way. I love this line
0: you said, Doug, um, ask the real questions that need to be asked.
1: Yeah. Any examples of that? Um, There's a couple. He was a, the husband was incarcerated for several years. He's been out about a year. And we've been working with them to understand the family journey. And every step of the way, I'm asking them to uh, help me understand the needs of they, what they went through at different phases of this journey so our resources can, can be more supportive and be better. Um, I find myself frequently wanting to hold back from asking some really hard questions, I want to be sensitive. So I I tread lightly, but in the in a, in a recent exchange, I asked, okay, what was the lived experience during the arrest phase? What what happened to you from the spouse perspective, not the husband, the spouse and the children? What did the children feel at arraignment and sentencing? And certain benchmarks along that journey. Um, That was the first question you asked to the person that got arrested or to the family? To the family. Okay. And it was interesting because the husband, who had been been through the incarceration, wanted to maybe share some of what his family went through. And we corrected that. We said, no, we're going to hear the family's story through the family's words. And uh, very, it came across so beautiful, so authentic and raw. The lived experiences, I think, if I think if most, it came up frequently. The spouse is describing very difficult lived experiences, and repeatedly she was expressing that no one around them knew really what they were going through. It was hidden. That was the part that broke my heart. Could we have been uh, in a place as a people, as a community, where we could, we could be a little more open to get the, the ministering and the support that was needed? Every journey is different. I, in retrospect, maybe that was handled perfectly for their needs. You can't help but wonder, could we have been more understanding? Could someone have come through and said, no, really? Where are you at with your finances? There's no way you're going to keep this house, right? There's, whatever the those realities were, um, that's a space for a, a good friend, a call leader, an assigned leader, however we wanted to minister, but um, would have been helpful for them. I love that because um, I think we all can do that.
0: We all may not have the skills to help in a... Um, in a financial situation like understanding exactly what's going to happen financially and you may need to get a member of your ward involved to help make financial decisions or guide Mm -hmm. something through but I love what you said about you know asking those hard questions and then I loved your example tell me what you know tell me what the rest phase was like you know tell me how that felt and I think I'm like you. I I would think those would be inappropriate questions and I wouldn't want someone to relive their painful experiences, but I don't have any clinical training, but my ministry of just talking to people has taught me in trusted situations. Those are people want to share that experience and it's healing for them. Yeah.
1: Um, And it is a fine line. You don't want to inflict a trauma. I wouldn't ask that in the front of elders quorum. Right. It's it's Um, about place and timing. And according to that, that, Soft spirit that guides, but the, soft spirit uh, um, but to get to the root of the issue is really a, an important thing, and that's that's something as neighbors as community we can do you can you can go to the halfway homes, the shelters, the jails, the prisons, right you can volunteer, you can choose you don't have to this doesn't have to be through the church. there are so many places to serve. And you get that experience of sitting with someone and saying, "What do you need?" Um, it's transformative. It's it's the real thing.
0: I love that, and I love Sister Fiona Gibbons' um, quote that I use sometimes in this podcast to touch someone's cross, which is this mm-hmm. visual of you know helping somebody. If we touch their cross, we have to understand the story, yeah. and the nature of the road they're walking, and and we have to ask questions to learn that.
1: When you remember the, the late Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel uh, spoke uh, for so many years about the indifference that was taking place in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, which led to the rise of the, the Nazi regime and all of the horrors thereafter, um, that word indifference regarding the Holocaust is very sacred maybe to a a lesser degree there is a place of indifference amongst all of us in our communities whatever our faith tradition there is a place of indifference regarding these issues we're incredibly polarized in our news media Um, the information flowing into home by home is so different and um, that's a that's a enormous challenge, an enormous problem. But at the end of the day, uh, we have a enormous mass incarceration human crisis in this country. We cannot afford it. It is not it's a failed experiment. Um, to remain indifferent maybe isn't the best way to approach it. Uh, immigration, detention on the border there's, a, there's been so much over the last several years that we have all faced as citizens um, it's easy to take a, a quick stab and make a call and, and and plant your position around these political issues or these different views but to study out a little bit to hear the the broader realities to seek a, a higher truth around these issues prepares us to know when our voice is needed when we will write to lawmakers when we will address social issues um, with greater sophistication, greater honesty I hope our
0: listeners just heard what you just said there that's really tender for me Um, no one's quite said what you said about you know as the information in coming to homes is so different based on where we go to that information. Yeah. And it's easy to state our flag and it's, but it takes a lot of, I can't remember the word you use to me. It's a lot of maturity to, um, I call it the trap of unearned opinions. It's easy for me to quickly have an opinion about an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what you did. Mm-hmm. Um, you said I, when that binder, was sent in front of you you went and walked into prisons yeah and i think there's a principle there when you're talking about a marginalized group is to or a complicated social or political issue is to have the maturity to try to not develop concrete opinions until you've really tried to investigate the story and i think part of the way to do that is to somehow directly
1: interact or hear stories of the very people we're talking about And an individual listening today may not think, um, that their involvement in the, uh, the crime and incarceration umbrella of problems is their arena, but the same skill sets apply, of getting into the weeds with the issue, choosing to be a listener, choosing to hear all sides, um, Synthesizing that information, and at some point, you use your voice. You just have to. The palatability about talking about criminal mistakes, the shame of having been a victim, the shame and embarrassment of a family member. Uh, hiding a secret life and addiction or whatever and then the, the uncovering of that um we've got to we've we have to move past that if we go to pick a city right you pick a big urban city if we go to georgia we go to south side of georgia there and we're going to be in some communities where there is a a, fl- uh, a a revolving door in and out of jails and prisons right uh, communities are so aware in the urban setting around um, uh, the incarceration component. Ministries, churches are really well-equipped to support the families. They know these realities. They're in the streets. They're trying to get these kids off the streets who are going to be the next ones to offend. Maybe in arch faith tradition, Maybe, in other faith traditions, this is has just kind of reached a, a level of crisis where we have to pay attention. Many of your listeners are, are would be really surprised at yeah. uh, these realities but it's time it's time to engage a little deeper, a little a little bit more. There are those who are going to be listening who have been in these waters for decades and they're going to be shouting because they're saying, "Yes, we are trying." I am so grateful for those who have gone before, um, who have been in the jails, been in the prisons, been in the ministry. Um, So many have dedicated their lives to helping and healing. This is just the next step.
0: Talk about shame in the context of this space. We talk about shame a lot in this podcast about different, just you've used that word a few times. And I've always felt that's, I've always thought that's one of Satan's greatest tools. Obviously, committing a crime, there's—I assume there's sin involved <laughs> and yeah. a mistake, and that's—but sort of the shame is often one of greatest of Satan's tools to sort of add to that. Um,
1: this, the crime and the sin are, are really an interesting point of discussion. There are sins that are not criminal. That's true. Uh, there are, there's a space of overlap and even within our, our international church, right? Um, there are behaviors that are sin across the the belief system that we have regarding drugs, for example, or uh, word of wisdom issues. Some of those acts are criminal in the United States and not in, we choose Spain, right? So you can have a member of the church who, uh, is doing the exact same act, using marijuana, recreational kind of thing. And and it's a sin, we would say, I guess. And we would then say it's criminal here, but it's not criminal in a different country. And so as a church, as a people, we're asking, um, how do we honor the laws of the land, deal with those realities of, of criminal code, always keep in mind this is about a long view the spiritual progression of the individual um, in a recent visit from one of the senior leaders of the church to the prison a beautiful comment was made which is uh, which was the the Lord will forgive you the inmates probably f- long before society and even the church will forgive you. That is, that's a beautiful reality because as individuals are incarcerated, um, and they do reach a point of feeling forgiven, they still have got to do their time. They've got to come back through the, through the portals. Shame, uh, exists on lots of levels. Um, families, teenagers, we could talk about teenagers for a minute. Uh, parent is incarcerated a sibling is incarcerated an uncle Um, in some parts of our communities what's the big deal right everyone's uncle everyone's brother's been through something right In other parts of our our people it's we're very insulated from this world and it it becomes a a stumbling block it need not be Uh, mistakes happen sometimes our addictions are socially acceptable sometimes they're not Interesting. My dark chocolate addiction doesn't send me to jail, right? <laughs> but um, I don't mean to make light of, of it of that. But the there there are elements that carry a a level of being able to discuss and palatability within our people. That's where we have got to change. Just be accepting, inclusive. Um, everyone has a place in this church everyone has a place in our society Um, if they're seeking that space how can I help them arrive let me share one story about that keeps coming to my mind around this several years ago I was in Boise visiting the state prison there Um, Boy, we have some dedicated souls ministering In that in those prisons, Uh, some some bishops and some folks who have just put their life on hold to minister to those who are incarcerated and just great. I was there on a Saturday and the inmates had organized a what they called Meet the Mormons. And it was an open house in the prison for anyone from other faiths to come in and learn what the church teachings were. I was stunned wow. that these inmates had organized this. Um, I was brought in, I'm a speaker at this, give my, uh, my share my thoughts and my, my discussion points. Um, at the end of the meeting, a closing prayer prayed for a man who was going to be dying very soon. And they, 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 they were very emotional in this prayer as they talked about Please bless our dear brother in his passing. Uh, I immediately asked the bishop after the meeting, what was that about? Who is this? There's a member of the branch, a man who had been incarcerated for 17 years, was a member of the church prior, uh, had been a faithful attendee and, and kind of internal leader, if you will, for those 17 years. It experienced kidney failure and if you're familiar with the realities of prison right they don't offer dialysis or kidney transplants unless the families can afford this it's I didn't really know rare. That. not everywhere but this was the case so he was uh, slipping away I they asked if I wanted to see him so I was taken deep into the prison infirmary um, why did you say yes I don't know. I, I just—I love uh, that you said yes. You know, I just—if I could help, if I don't know—I love. That I'm you not ecclesiastical. Right? I'm not an ecclesiastic leader. I don't hold keys. I'm you not could a, have just said I'm done. You know, I'm a hired gun. I'm a I'm a, <laughs> I'm a staff guy, and I was there. But I, that's all they had was the staff guy. I Said yes, I'd like to. So we went in, went into this this prison hospital ward, uh, very tragic scene. Uh, he was in his bed um, in, a, in a largely morphine-induced indo- coma uh, as he was slipping away. And I sat on the edge of his bed, held his hand for a moment, and just told him I was from the church. And I love him. Not expecting any response. For a few moments, he woke up, was very lucid uh he said who are you and i reiterated that i work for the church and uh i was surprised by what i said next and i don't know it, it was it was the spirit but it was uh i said is there anything you want sorry is there anything you want me to tell the leadership of the church and he said yes tell them i have felt forgotten and uh we i just held his hand and uh that was the end of the conversation he kind of slipped away and uh, passed away a few hours later this brother had been in a facility where we had a branch of the church Family history institute, addiction recovery, worship services, a bishop, scriptures, enzyme, everything we bring into the correctional ministry—he had flagship program, if we can use that term. And on his deathbed, he f- said he felt forgotten by us, by the faith. So there is a place where we can improve our ministering we can we can uh communicate to our branch leaders vision of, of heartfelt support you know what we need we can improve on our operational side of our our correctional services work for sure you can say that about any corner of the kingdom yeah but there is some truth that we forget those. And, uh, I don't feel absolved from that in any way. I feel that I share in that, um, as everyone would, that changed me. And it, it has been a, a quiet little corner of my heart that has propelled me to, to work on days that were Harder than others, and to to care about this group in a, in, a, in the best way that we can. One beautiful thing that did happen from that is there was a, um, resources. You know, a, a prison graveyard is not a, a an elaborate place, and we were able to put in motion some supports and financial supports to make sure that there was a proper funeral. And that's great. Beautiful things that took you know took place from that, but um, we can do better. In this in this little corner, in all of these marginalized member group corners, we can listen with greater sensitivity. We can educate ourselves. Um, so anyway,
0: I love that story. <laughs> I love that you. I just love that you said I want to see this guy. I I think there's a protecting my emotional my emotional safety that would say, do I really want to see this guy? He's been on he needs dialysis, he's dying. Yeah. This is going to be a pretty somber visit for me. Do I want to, you know, use the emotional resources within me to go and see him? Um I love I think Latter-day Saints and all, a lot of people of the world want to do the right thing and want to reach mm-hmm. out and, and be with somebody. But I love the way you did that. And I love the word, you've used the word listening a lot. And I've been thinking about that word. <laughs> the other day, I thought, well, about six months ago, well, about a year ago, I thought, you know, we should change home teaching to home listening. <laughs> um, and not to be too silly there, I've always thought that you know, we've, we've, we've culturally valued this ability to teach and lead and talk. And I've wondered if, particularly in men, if we've taught us how to listen. And we've valued that skill set as a ministering tool to meet people's needs. Yeah. And I love what, what, you know, you've used that word a couple times. We need to do more of that.
1: Any thoughts on that? The, um, the value of hearing Someone listening to them, acknowledging that you hear them, changes a conversation. Uh, one of the, the supervisors I have right now, I, I really admire him, um, gifted administrator and, and personal person in every way. I will pr- I will make a comment to him. I will raise an issue and he will say this let me make sure I understand you. And he'll repeat back to me. And I said, you you almost got it. Let me try it again. And we'll make sure that we come together in our point of understanding. Um, to listen and then to add to that, let me make sure I understand you. And hear you. Even if my little suggestion into the the apparatus in which I work that I bring forward doesn't go anywhere. I feel validated. I feel heard. That that means something uh, to all of us. I don't. You can be thick skinned or not, but it matters. Um, when we go to give a, a to ministering to give a blessing, um, often there's a moment where we can say, "What's going on? Where are you at? What, what, what are you struggling with?"
0: All of those are open-ended
1: questions. Yeah. But then to say, let me make sure I understand you. I have found putting that in practice really prepares me to provide a blessing or to provide a counsel if it's appropriate. It's not just a skill set. It's a way of being, being the kind of person that wants to make sure you hear others and really understand them with our children um, works wonders uh, my 16 year old is a smart gifted young man um, cares a great deal about others and uh, he'll come home from a wrestling meet telling me stories and then there's always usually there's usually a point where it's something that matters more took place and I try to say, tell me more about that. What does this mean? Do I understand you? Um, And he leaves sometimes just being heard and I don't have to progress to the lecture that is in my head that I want to give.
0: (laughs) I just think, I love your answers there, home-centered, church-supported, um, I think there's a link there to then better interpersonal skills with listening be a key one that we need to do as we're as a as ministering and as part of our making our family strong. And um, so both areas. Um, uh, another question we don't ha- you know, most of us that are members of the church, when we see the church we and we see key sort of sensitive topics being addressed. We see that through our leaders and we see general conference talks or we see like Elder Renlund's videos about suicide that are excellent. And you're working for the church kind of behind the scenes. Um, And you've kind of mentioned marginalized groups a few times, just without tipping, you know, just share with our listeners the, and we talked about this a little bit before, just the great effort that's going on internally in the church to try to do all that we can for marginalized groups.
1: Happy to the, uh, where do I start without, you yeah, don't have to uh, talk about a specific yeah, program there's, there's or so many beautiful moving but, parts. I think the place to start is to recognize that all of these issues, um, are being faced by every faith community out there for years I have attended a conference called uh, a faith and disability conference leaders from different religions come from all over the world. And we talk about inclusion. And as I've sat around the table, there's a a, every faith tradition you can imagine is in my, is in my discussion group. And we talk about how do we help someone uh, feel like they belong and they can contribute and they can progress. Um, this is a community thing. We're all seeking to improve in this. Um, those conversations within the the headquarters of the church are are have materialized into staff, into employees that are have been hired with tremendous skill set uh, on these specialized issues. It's phenomenal. Um, it's also been beautiful to see. Work groups organized across department lines so that the skill set of, you know, uh, within the church. So you got all these church departments. I think your average member of the church doesn't realize I all the, yeah. the moving parts inside. Uh, but it could very easily and has been, maybe perhaps in the past, um, compartmentalized. Uh, one of the great strengths of organizing this work right now is the cross-departmental work group so that messaging avenues, content development, areas of expertise are all being brought together. That is really significant so that when we bring an idea forward to the leadership or leadership make a request, there is a Flexible, responsive, capable team to work on it. It's 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 remarkable. Uh, the Lord has provided in every way: um, people, resources. Um, it's a wrestle, just like in any group. It doesn't matter if you're in or out of the church. It's 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 a it's a wrestle. But we're uh, it's a very consecrated group, very passionate.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Doug. Uh, As I've just learned more about the inner workings of the church, and I've recognized what Doug is sharing and what Doug does for the church directly is that there's a lot of wonderful, faithful people working on these really complex issues, and there's a real effort to reach and meet the needs of particularly marginalized Latter-day Saints. I think sometimes... My listeners may not feel like our leaders are always listening or always hearing, and uh, the more I learn, and the more I recognize people are listening and wanting to learn, and and I'm seeing great progress within the church to address some of these more difficult topics. And I just, you know, this is 19, this is 2020 starting, and I would guess in 2030, if we could just see 2030 right now, mm-hmm. you've got a smile on your face as I as I. I just think, wow, those were great 10 years, and we're just— and I love the way you're talking about all faith communities, and I think it's a maturing of society and a maturing of our skill sets to be able to talk about and address some of these more difficult topics. And I love the church infrastructure that when we um, do talk about a subject like this and we release like Elder Redland's suicide videos, that we have this beautiful structure to roll something like that out worldwide— to all these stakes and all these congregations. And that's one of the great strengths to me of the church is the great centralization of the church, but then can share that message worldwide. And so it gives me great hope as we just continue to move forward. Um, I'll ask one last question of finishing, but I'll ask the question if you want to go back and just talk any more about that. But the, um, I'll ask maybe a few more questions. The question I, uh, before we went live, we talked about the copy of this painting that's in our home, the pool of Bethesda painting. Yeah. Um, And I was sharing my thoughts about the painting and Doug, will you share your thoughts about this painting and what it represents? A little story. And, or if there's anything you first want to go back on with what you're doing with the church.
1: Um, I mean, just, yeah, I'm happy to talk about the, the, the little story I had with that painting. And I think it fits into, um, the improved responsiveness um, happening in our wards, individuals from headquarters from a lot of different places uh, to, to specialized topics. But the the Carl Block Pool of Bethesda painting has been one of my favorites. The scripture story has always held my attention. Um, it's a uh, number of years ago I was recently brought into the priesthood department I had been in seminaries and institutes and I had been really focused on disabilities now I had this new assignment and no one really knew what this was yet we were figuring this out but it was special topics and on our plate were a number of these subjects and how do we what do we do how do we organize this um, Um, a meeting was organized down at BYU on campus um, for me to go and listen and learn from several experts. The Carl Block Pool of Bethesda painting was on display at the time. I don't know if it still is, but it was on display down there in Provo. I wanted to see this painting face-to-face. Art means something to me. I love Uh, the experience you can have with the painting so I arrived early carved out a few minutes to step into the BYU museum and to see this painting when I arrived the museum was under renovation and construction and the painting was on the wall but it was shrouded by this large piece of construction plastic I could see through it um And I arrived at the painting and my first thought was my heart sunk and I thought, Oh geez, I don't even really get to see the painting. I'm seeing it through a scratchy, dusty, dirty plastic lens. Right. And then the imagery hit me about where I was personally. Um, how clear did I really see the message of that scripture story? where the Savior could say, arise and walk, where he could heal. I think personally, I have faith in that story, but I was still seeing it through a cloudy lens in ways. Um, Maybe as a people, uh, the culture of of our people, uh, organizationally, our messaging from headquarters, I don't know, you could layer maybe several layers there, Uh, The truth had been given, has been given to us so many times by inspired called leaders. Uh, But I was very aware that as a people, we're still seeing these issues through this barrier. And um, so there's been a part of my life that has said, okay, how do we remove that barrier? Uh, What's the next barrier in my life? personally to, to remove so that I can do this, his work, his way, um, organizationally, what, what barriers could we remove to facilitate greater inclusion, belonging, love, um, as we extrapolate across the church, across the world, um, the multiplicity of challenges, uh, just grows, um, The central message of Jesus's power, his whole life, his ministry, his being, um, needs to be seen clearly. Uh, So as I was on BYU campus, I had that experience. Then I walked into a room of tremendous scholars, of which I was the least. And I listened as they talked about their publishing and their expertise around some of the subjects we were moving towards. I felt overwhelmed and all the above and thrilled that God had provided us with such expertise. And I could just see all the pieces are here uh, for us as a people to progress. I think we are. Uh, small things this podcast others work messaging awareness um, not all of it comes from downtown Salt Lake City in fact probably some of the most important transformative pieces just come from member to member as we engage as a community it's really beautiful to see
0: I really love that collar block story you just shared and I love the visual imagery and the analogy you drew from the from the cover over the actual Carl Bloch painting and your feelings about that. And thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, I love what, you know, I call them non-LDS tools callings, like when you're talking about all these wonderful leaders that serve... Some of those show up on LDS tools, but so much of the work in the church doesn't necessarily show up on LDS tools. Yeah. And I think we have formalized callings that are LDS tools type calling. I have one, um, you have one, um, and but I think sometimes as we're moving to you know we I sort of love this direction instead of saying and staying home centered church supported. I think it empowers our message members more. To say, well, the church isn't just going to solve everything. They've given, And Christ didn't solve everything. Um, but the tools and the framework and the teaching and the doctrine is there to empower us as members at times to do non-LDS tools type callings mm-hmm. that can deeply impact other people for good. And I just love that. And it's more empowering to me. I don't sit and just sometimes wait for my leaders to call me to something. I think that's maybe my, been my mentality. I, my, that box is checked of serving others, and I'll, you know, I'll, when I'm called to do something or not. But I feel more empowered now as part of my covenants to at times. And everybody can't do that all the time. You've got to take care of your family and your career. But at times we do feel called
1: to do things like that, and that's the beauty of of our church, you know. And it's it's acting upon things. Which we will never be inspected on. I, w- I heard once the phrase from a in a discussion. Uh, members of the church will by and large do what they're inspected to do, and uh, maybe that that's a sad commentary. I don't think it reflects every aspect of our people. I do think that there's some truth to it. Um, often those monthly home teaching feels like that. Right. Me. Yeah. We were expected around that as that inspection piece has been lifted, as we've been given license to do good inside of that sphere of influence. We have according to that spirit, which is given to us, um, tremendous opportunities, civic responsibility to engage in our communities, um the the just serve website yeah. is so significant because it outlines all of this these all this space for engagement um of your own accord and that's you know in, building our communities matters strengthening those in our neighborhood matters the realities of those impacted by crime and incarceration, um, are rough. This is a space where we, uh, could learn more, could do more. We could advocate more, whatever the, whatever you're prompted to do. Um, it doesn't happen in isolation, but it is solved one by one. It's, it is his work. Uh, so many spaces to to contribute and
0: to help do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share Doug
1: um thank you for what you're doing and allowing me to, to jump in here and talk about some things that matter to me um I think the there are so many individuals who are engaged in this work in different ways um there are so many who are struggling those who are in crisis because of um, the criminal justice involvement kind of experience right often their hands hang so low we don't see them Uh, so we've got to look a little harder find ways to, to understand I hope this is helpful for someone uh, to consider their ways a little bit and to, to think a little broader. But the, here's, here's the last thought that really matters. Um, God is in charge. Uh, we have to bring our voice to this issue, to these issues. We've got to do what is right. Um, my experience has been he is preparing the way his timing, his preparations seem to coincide with our due diligence and our efforts um, in whatever your corner of care is. So we exercise faith as a belief. Faith is a power. Faith is an opportunity. And we, we try, start conversations, start caring, walk through the doors. These things we've talked about today, and we change, we improve. But thank you so much for letting me throw in with you for a few minutes and uh, share.
0: That's great. Thank you, Doug Richens, um, for just being a disciple of Christ and helping marginalized groups and coming on our podcast. Thank you, Gainal and Condi, who connected us. Yes, thank you. And thank you for all the good work our church is doing. I think, there's probably far more behind the scenes going on that I'm aware of. And it's people like Doug and all the many men and women that work in these various departments that have a common goal. And it gives me great hope for the future and the beauty of our church. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.